Church, open up to Ephesians, will you please? Ephesians chapter 3 is where we find ourselves. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'd love to afterwards. My name's Tom, and I'm the preaching elder uh, and pastor here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. It's our, it's our pattern that we go through books of the Bible, line by line, uh, phrase by phrase, chapter by chapter, and we find ourselves tonight halfway through the third chapter of Paul to the Ephesians. By way of sort of a historical, contextual recap, Paul is in the city of Rome, but he's in chains. He's in a house arrest because he was, he was arrested uh, back in Jerusalem uh, uh, about a year prior, uh, where he was uh, uh, then uh, arrested on, on charges of taking an unclean Gentile into the temple, and he, was, uh, he appealed to Caesar because he wanted to go to Rome and be able to preach the gospel. And so on many ship rides and shipwrecks later, he finds himself in Rome, and from there he continues to preach the gospel while he's while he's chained up, but he also sends letters, the, the prison epistles, and he sends them to, to Colossae, and he sends them to, uh, to Philippi, and he sends them also the letter to Ephesus, that church where he had labored, that, that city where he had labored to create a church, to birth a church through his preaching, that Gentile city, that pagan city became a, a, a swept and overrun with the gospel as so many people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ according to Paul and his preaching and his associates. And then they formed what became a large church in the New Testament times, one of the most influential churches in one of the biggest and most influential cities according to the culture and empire of the day. Now he then goes and writes back to them, not in the situation where he's got a heresy to, to uh, 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 correct or that he's got false teachers that are threatening the church or splitting them apart. He's simply writing to them about the, the joy and the glory of the gospel. So he's done just that. In Ephesians 1, he wrote all about the benefits of being made one with the Lord Jesus Christ by a union with him and all of the, the, the way that the, the full Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in, internally active in our salvation. And that was a, a deep dive and a study in to salvation. Then we've we've seen last week and the week prior, he preaches and explains the gospel for us that it is on no account of by what we have done or works that we have achieved, but only by God's grace. And then he applies that at the last half of chapter 2 and says, now, since that's the case, since there is nothing human, nothing physical, nothing about you that qualifies you for salvation in Christ, the only requirement is faith and faith alone, not, not your works of the law. But what that then means is that the door is equal equally open to Jews who are sinners and to Gentiles who are sinners. And now there is no more any division in the people of God among the Jews and the Gentiles. And so last week we saw that he engages and he employs this, this Old Testament language of the Gentile and Jewish church to show that there is no more Old Testament divisions. It's, it's rather ironic how he does that. He calls the church, all of us, the people of God that call on the name of Jesus by faith, the church of God filled with his spirit, the church of God under the authority of the holy apostles and prophets, according to the word, we are the new covenant, the new kingdom, temple of God in the world, the presence of his glory and his power, the church. That's us. And now he says of, of all of that, of, of this gospel, I was made a minister. And that's where we're going to start our reading tonight in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7. We'll read to the end of verse 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. 
according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access, sorry, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose faith or lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God bless his own inerrant, inspired word in our midst this evening. We're going to see tonight, uh, this, is, this is Paul talking about his own ministry. There is, there is, just like in our day, there is plenty of places that you can go to ask uh, people in the first century what they think of Pastor Paul. And don't be deceived, there was a wide-ranging uh, spectrum of opinions about Pastor Paul and how righteous he was or how unrighteous he was and whether he was inspired or not, whether he was even saved, whether he was homosexual. If you ask the, uh, the commentators today, they come up with these theories. I mean, it was a single guy. He traveled a lot. He seemed to like his tunic, right? He traveled a lot with Barnabas. Sounds, sounds you know, they, everybody puts onto Paul their own views and their own nuances and their own criticisms onto Paul about what they make of his ministry. But this is one of those passages when the Spirit inspires him to give us a recap or an overview of his own ministry. And it is very, uh, very important that we look here and we study on this because what Paul did, he would say himself, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He was the great example to the Gentile church, and he was the great, what he called in in 1 Corinthians 3, he called himself a, a, a chief master builder in terms of the church, the way he laid the foundation, the way he taught, who he ordained. He was a chief master builder. Now, of course, his, uh, his aim in saying all that about himself is to give to the church for all ages an example to follow, a, 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 a shining example of New Testament ministry to imitate. And so when we come to this passage tonight, it's not just a random biography of, of some uh, uh, fella who happens to be on our page tonight. This is key for us as a New Testament church who seeks to be in line, not just in our doctrine, but also in our practice with the apostles of the first century. This becomes very important that we study his life and understand what was important to the apostle Paul. So tonight we're going to look at three ways, uh, three elements or three uh, 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 perspectives of Paul's ministry. First of all, why he was made a minister, which is to glorify God. And then what he was made a minister to do, which is to proclaim to everybody. And then thirdly, uh, another why he was made a minister. And that is how he fulfilled God's eternal purposes. So look at verse 7. As again, he said this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. 
according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. This is, this is how Paul, uh, this is one of the titles that he gives himself. This is where we get the idea in church of the, the ministry of the church, or sometimes we call people ministers who work for the church, pastors, elders, overseers, those sorts of things. But one of the other helpful phrases is a minister. And, and this puts everything into the, right, into the right perspective or into the right relationship because a minister is like a, is like a, a servant or a waiter at the restaurant. If, if you're the minister, you don't, you don't come up with the gospel. You're not allowed to edit the gospel. You're just meant to deliver the gospel. The minister is simply somebody who, who takes what God has said in his revelation as an apostle directly from God. Or for us, what God has said in the scriptures, we take what has been said there, we dispense it to other people, but we are not allowed to edit it. We are not God's PR agents trying to, trying to win him a bigger following if we just cut off the offensive edges, or if we just sprinkle over it some of our own modern sensibilities. Rather, rather we are, as Paul here himself calls himself, uh, not even, he doesn't even call himself an apostle here, he does in other places, but at this point, he's simply calling himself a minister, somebody who simply dispenses to you what God has given to me. And as he looks at his, his whole ministry and his whole life, he's going to say that there are two things which God gave me which should glorify God as you look at them. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. This is the, this is the first thing that Paul wants us to understand. First is that everything about him is an example of God's grace And secondly, his power. Paul's whole ministry was to be for the glory of God. And what therefore Paul wanted you to see is you looked at his life and you looked at his his sufferings and his fruit and his productivity and the churches that he had planted and the leaders that he had raised up and the heretics that he had battled and fought with and the nightless, the sleepless nights that he had prayed and all of the hours of his blood, sweat and tears, everything that you then see, these, these churches across the known world, the whole empire had been reached in some degree by Paul's preaching And you look at that and you marvel and you think what an amazing, gifted, skilled, holy man Paul must be. Paul wants you to look at that and and see that there is nothing that has been achieved by him in and of his own merits. He wants you to realize that as you look at him, all you are seeing is an example of God's grace. He did not deserve to be the one chosen to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He is is laboring the point that he is not the most worthy one to be an apostle with so much fruit, but rather he is just a shining example of God's grace. He says this again in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, now before we start just thinking he's just sort of, he's just feigning humility here. We all know pastors who've done that and and, uh, people, he's just buttering them up so that they think highly of him as he puts himself down. It's not that. What he's doing is really being honest. He's showing that even though he had this supreme and this authoritative and this amazingly fruitful ministry, he wants you to see in that only a sign of God's grace, not his worthiness. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, to give it a bit more context. He says, I am the least of the apostles. 
unworthy even to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, there's all sorts of insults that you can rightfully hurl towards the other 12 disciples and and how silly they were and slow to get things and annoying to Jesus and all that sort of stuff. There's plenty of sins they committed. There's follies that they had. There's, there's, There's idiocies that they did. But none of them can ever put their hand up and say that I murdered a Christian with my own bare hands. None of them can say that I took Christ's bride by the collar and beat her bloodied. None of them can say of the, of the, the temple of God, which is the church, none of them can say that they marched in there and defiled and defaced the place with the, with the equivalent of the blood of pigs. None of them can say that, but Paul can. In other words, if God was looking on earth for somebody who had the most merit, who deserved to be the apostle to write scripture and plant churches, the least deserving person on earth would have been the man on his horse riding down to Damascus to murder more Christians. And yet God, and yet God, in order to show forever the the extent and the boundless mercies of his grace, he picked the least deserving man, a murderer of Christians, to make him a life giver to Christians, to make him an apostle, a builder of the church. That's what Paul is saying, first of all. In my ministry, I received grace. I was the least of all. This grace was given to me as a gift These are the the phrases that he has used. First of all, that the grace received by him was to give glory to God. But secondly, we can also see that his ministry was to show God's power. Look at the end of verse 7. He said that the grace was given him, uh, uh, God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. We've already started getting a a few phrases or a few ideas from chapter 1, 2, and 3 that Paul has been uh, uh, listing to show examples of God's power. Remember back in uh, in, uh, uh, Ephesians 1, 19, he said that he showed his immeasurable power by raising Christ Jesus from the dead, from the deepest grave that has ever been uh, thought of to the highest seat that could ever be imagined. That's that's the power of God. But, But then he says he's also working that power towards us in that he raises us from spiritual death and seats us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly place. And and then last week we saw also that the the way that God is is showing his power in the church is by unifying Jew and Gentile into this this third race of humanity. There was was Jew, there was Gentile, but now because of Jesus, there's a third race, there's a third ethnicity. There is the new humanity Christian, those in Christ Jesus. And so these have been the the ideas that Ephesians has already shown to us is the, the working of God's great power And Paul is saying here again that my whole ministry has been infused with that very power that God has put on display for all of us. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read verse 9 before. I'm going to read verse 9 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God... What a wonderful phrase, but by the grace of God. Now, now I think if we were to fill in the blanks here, we would probably assume that Paul would go on to say, I, uh, I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I don't have to pay my penalty. 
By the grace of God, I was forgiven and left as I was. God, God, God showed me grace. And so, you know, we all know the phrase that God meets you where you're at. And what we, what we think that means is that because God's grace is just mercy and forgiveness, it then leaves us where we are at. That's not what Paul says. While grace on one hand, God's grace is this powerful wonder that it, 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 it discharges mercy towards us. God forgives us. God is, God is, God is uh, uh, not, not charging us with our sins. That's one half of grace. But the other part of grace is that it makes us into new people. The other part of grace is that it empower, empowers us for transformation. So look at what Paul says. He says, but by the grace of God, I now am what I am. I'm different to what I was by the grace of God. I'm a new person working for God by the grace of God. Let's keep reading. I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So many people would want to hold Paul up here and go, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, you don't have to work hard. Didn't you just hear that you received so much grace? But that's not how it, how it works in Paul's mind. And we're not allowed, allowed to sort of make exceptions for ourselves here. Paul has said in Ephesians 1 that God's mighty power is at work towards you who believe, and then in chapter 3, he then says, and God's power is at work in me. And what have I done with that powerful working and grace of God? I've worked harder than anyone else. The grace of God is not antithetical to hard work. The grace of God is antithetical to hard work for salvation. But the grace of God comes into us to change us and then make us hard workers. So Paul's whole ministry was to give glory to God as the gracious one who chose him and the powerful one who equipped him. But, but surely an, an application at this point needs to be that we refuse to make excuses for ourselves for being not very much like Paul. The grace of God that Paul had received is the same grace towards us. The power of God that Paul had received for ministry and fruit and productivity is the same power at work in those who believe who've been raised in Christ Jesus right now. We don't get to say that, that Paul glorified God for his power and I just glorify God for his grace because I'm a failure and I, and I don't do anything. We shouldn't do that. We must not do that. We should get active so that with Paul we can say, by the grace of God, I now am what I am. And he, his grace towards me is not in vain. <clears throat> That's Paul's ministry. To glorify God for his power and glorify God for his grace. But thirdly, we look at the content of his ministry. <clears throat> Down in verse 8 and 9 and uh, verse 10. What was it that he was given to do in this ministry to glorify God? Verse 8, we read this. To me, though I was the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
Paul lists these three groups of people that his job as an apostle and missionary and church planter was to inform in some way, to proclaim something to each of the parties. First of all, he says the Gentiles. He was to preach to the Gentiles. Then he was to enlighten the eyes of everybody. And then he was to put on display the manifold wisdom of the church to the angels. Let's start here in the, this idea of the Gentiles at the end of verse 8 where he was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a wonderful phrase that is, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The the Apostle Paul in this book loves these uncapped, infinite statements. He said the the immeasurable power, the the unending grace, the the depths of the riches, and all of these kinds of phrases. And here he's using the the riches of of what, the unsearchable riches of Christ that he's preaching to the Gentiles. But to move beyond just the, the flowery language, what is that in searchable uh, 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 riches? The, the, what he was actually to preach to uh, the, the Gentiles, and that is specifically the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and also particularly how that gospel brings Jew and Gentile into equality, into God's now eternal purpose of the church. This is what he was preaching to the Gentiles. It was, it was his job. Now, we, we recall in the early church, some, some of us don't quite have this historical understanding. We're a little bit backwards with how we think. We sort of think church and we think Gentiles from day one. And it's not how it was. The, the church was, was for about a decade mainly, majoritarily, hugely Jewish. It was not until, I mean, there was only a, a, few, a few elements here and there that included some Gentiles. There was the, the vision that, that Peter had, which sent him to Cornelius' household, but there was one household, and he only did it because God literally told him to. And then there was the other people who went to Samaria, but the Samaritans were half Jewish anyway, so that was sort of swept under the rug. And, and then, of course, there was the men who went up to Antioch, and they they dared, right? They dared not only to preach to the Jews, but even to the non-Jews. What an amazing fact. But even then, it was ministry to Jews with the overflow to Gentiles. What was new and what was shocking and what really caught a lot of them by surprise is that Paul and Barnabas were then set apart from the church in Antioch and their whole ministry was directed not to go and find the Jews and bring in some Gentiles if they can, but to go to Gentile lands where they may expect to find no Jewish people and preach to them the selfsame gospel they preached to the Jews. Go and preach to pagan lands that if they believe in Christ, they're brought into access to the Father, they're forgiven of all their sins, they're adopted into God's family, they're a part of the eternal kingdom. Go and preach to them the self-same riches of Christ that you enjoy as a Jew. That was altogether new as we recapped last week. So that was his job. That's why he was, at some times, he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles or the apostle of the Gentiles. He was a minister to the uncircumcised is what he's called sometimes. This was, this was definitive of his ministry. He went to the Gentiles to preach to them. That's number one. Secondly, though, his second lot of proclamation was that in, and we see this in verse nine, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That is to say that while he he went to preach to the Gentiles, it's also as if 
the Jewish and Gentile uh, believers and non-believers, so Christians and non-Christians, Jewish and Gentiles, emperors and slaves. It was also so that, so that they were all sort of huddled around. If you've ever been to the museum or something like that and you walk up to this dark enclosure and you press the button and the light comes on and the, and the voiceover starts explaining the, 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 the ins and the outs of the fossil or the ancient civilization, whatever it is that you're looking at. That's kind of the scenery of what Paul is using here. He says, while I'm, I'm in the, on the ground preaching to Gentiles that they might know Jesus Christ, but at the same time, my whole ministry, by word of mouth and on the grapevine as, as the record spread and as I wrote it down and spread letters around, the rest of the world was supposed to be looking in and realizing the wonderful work of God that was going on in the Jewish-Gentile relationship in the church as they were together reconciled to the God they had sinned against. So here's here's his ministry. One leg of it was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and that's what he spends the the, the, the lion's share of his time doing. But one of the other purposes was to point the whole world that watched towards the mystery hidden for ages in God, which is the purpose of reconciling Jew and Gentile. And thirdly, we'll get to the angels. But just look at this phrase at the end of verse 9. He says, a plan for the mystery hidden in ages, hidden for ages in God. And then he calls God who created all things. And I think that these two phrases are showing the, by two perspectives that this plan of God for the church, this plan of God to reconcile mankind to each other and to himself in Jesus is both a universal and an all of history plan. It would be tempting to start hearing this from Paul and assuming, as so many did, I guess God changed his plan. Because the old plan was to keep the Gentiles out of God's purposes. The old plan was to increase law and make the Jews ultra special. And here's Paul saying, no, no, this has always been the plan. The whole old covenant was amping up towards this. This was the mystery hidden for ages in God. So so this has always been God's plan. But then on the other hand, he calls him the God who made all things. And I think in that sense, he's making this a universal gospel. He's saying, why would the God who made everything only save one race? Why would the God who made everything reject a race just to go to the Gentiles? No, this is the God who made all things and therefore presents his gospel of redemption to all things, all people, all races, and all nations. So so that is the second sort of leg of what his ministry was, a preaching of the gospel to souls to be saved, but also an enlightening, a turning on the lights so that everybody can see these artifacts in the museum of what is God's purposes in salvation. And then thirdly, the third lot of people that were being preached to or proclaimed to is the angels. Look at this language in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Manifold wisdom. Paul is here saying that As you look at the purpose of God in the church, you're supposed to realize that this wisdom of God has so many different angles and perspectives. Once I was driving with uh, my son in the back seat, and it was a beautiful sunset, and there were these pink, ripply clouds going all over the sky, and he looked up and he said, wow, Dad, why is the sky pink? 
And I said, well, that's the sunlight. It's, it's not the sky itself. It's not really the clouds. It's the sunlight that is making the clouds so pink. And he said, wow, we have a pink sun now. So here's him thinking, we have the red sun, the yellow sun, and, and then real late in the evening, if there's enough smog, it's beautiful, but I'm pretty sure it's just smog in the air, we get this pink sun. Now what I had to tell him was, no, 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 mate, mate, same sun, but different angles. Same sun, but different refraction of light at different, different times of the day with different humidity levels. The, the, the same sun shows us different colors. And now here's what's happening in the first century is that Paul is saying to, to these, maybe these, these Jews or maybe confused Gentiles, whoever it was, they're hearing this plan of the church and saying, okay, we thought that the wisdom of God was shown in the covenants and the laws and the temples and the division of Jew and Gentile in the old covenant. I guess now there's a new wisdom. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. There's just a manifold wisdom. This is just a, a multifaceted diamond that is the wisdom of God. This is a kaleidoscope, kaleidoscope of glory. This is not a different plan, a different wisdom, a different God or a different redemption. And he says here about the angels that they, and we can put together here with the demonic realm, even, even though it says in the heavenly places, that doesn't mean that he's saying the good angels up in heaven as opposed to the hellish places where the bad angels are. Rather, the heavenly places is more or less just, just language in the Bible for, for the spiritual realm. And he's putting on display for those dominions and principalities, he's putting on display the manifold wisdom of God. <clears throat> Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, that this might make a little bit more sense for us. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. In this passage, like Paul, Peter has been expounding on the free grace that is ours in the gospel. And then he says in verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's what he's saying is that the prophets, as they would, they, they, would, they would be given the visions, they would be given the interpretations, and they would write them down. But even then, they would stand on their tiptoes to try and figure out what this was. They would crack out the magnifying glass and, and exegete their own prophecies to try and figure out who is this, the suffering and glorified king? Who is this, the, the servant who dies and yet lives forever. How can these things be and when will it be? They, they inquired deeply to things that we know as the ABCs of the gospel. This is the, the privilege of being born and saved after the time of Pentecost. We see these things in such glorious clarity. But he goes on and says, it's not just the prophets who wish they could understand more. The end of verse 12 they preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels 
are longing. They have been for ages longing to understand deeper and deeper realities about what God is doing through the gospel in mankind. And now, because of the resurrection of Jesus and the the sending of the Spirit, what, what we know by revelation from the apostles, I think the angels only know by observation that they were not told in full detail all of the things that God would be doing, nor do they know all the elements of human history yet to come, but rather they watch, they serve God as he sends them to minister to the church and to protect people and do whatever else they do as servants to us. However, they do not know in detail. They learn by observing what God does in his church in the world. And here they are blown away. They are seeing God's manifold wisdom as they look at the church and see people forgiven of their sins. Angels don't know what that's like. Angels that sinned were cast down. Angels that fell are condemned awaiting their fiery trial. None of them are even offered salvation. And yet they're looking at us made in his image, which they don't understand, sinning against him, which they don't understand, redeemed by grace through a mediator that is one of us and just as God, that they do not understand experientially. They don't know what that's like. So they they look and they marvel and they glorify God. But there's another passage I want to look at, which is not to do primarily with angels, but we'll get there. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If you want to go there, otherwise I will read 2 Chronicles chapter 7. As as Solomon had completed the building of his temple, the temple for Yahweh that he acknowledged was was not worthy of of housing God. And all throughout chapter 6, he kneels down and he prays this humble prayer. God, you don't deserve to live here. This temple doesn't deserve to have you, but would you be gracious? Would you condescend? Would you come here and would you meet us in this place of prayer and worship? And 2 Chronicles chapter 7 Begins like this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is what we call the Shekinah glory, the shining light of God's fiery glory that he shows to people every now and then. We saw it with Abraham in the the fiery pots by which God made his covenants. We, We saw it with Moses when he saw the burning bush and on Sinai when God's fire was on the mountain. We see it here when he fills the presence of the temple. We see it other times throughout the prophets, the Shekinah shining, amazing glory of God. But how amazing must the glory of God's wisdom on display in the church be if angels seeing all of that still wished that they could see the fullness how glorious must god's wisdom in the church be on display how how intense the colors how how bright the shining how intense the luminescence if angels who are standing in the explicit presence of the savior can look down to earth look at the church and not be blasphemous in their uttering the phrases there is the glory of god 
How amazing must the, 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 the glory of the church be that angels can do that when they can look at Jesus or they can look at the church. They, they look at the, the shining glory of God or they can look at the church because the church is the manifold pr- expression of the glory of God on earth now in all of the, despite all of the ways that we fall short. And even demons in the angelic realm, even they look on to the church and they see glory and they despise it. What they see in the church is the thwarting of all of their schemes. What the demons look on and, and feverishly hate in the church is all of their deadly practices that they've trained human beings to engage in. They see them being put to death through sanctification. They look on into the church and see a unity of races, especially Jew and Gentile, which they had once celebrated was division. They look on and they see the glory of God, which they despise. They look on and they see the end of idolatry. Can you imagine the, the demons in the temple of Artemis that, that, that once were, were just was filled with so many teeming Ephesians? And then we see in Acts chapter 19 that so many people stopped going to the temple because they had been converted that, the, that the, the, the souvenir shop guys who were selling idols went out of business. The whole city's economy was flipped on its head because there was so many conversions. Can you imagine the, the anger, the, the virulent hatred that the demons were burning with because of this church in Ephesus to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they despise. There is no wonder that the satanic realm strikes and seeks to harm, divide, and teach false heresy within the church. They hate it with all of their being. In the church, they see the, the constant declaration of their inevitable end one day. But no wonder also is it that the angels protect the church with every command and, and uh, service that God gives it. No wonder they marvel at it. No wonder they see there the display of God's glory. No wonder mature Christians give their all to serve in, build up, and strengthen and edify the local church because you've come to realize that it is the manifold presence of God's glory for all who have eyes of faith to see it. And no wonder, no wonder Paul in verse 13 says to us that he is perfectly willing to keep on rotting away in a, under house arrest. Look at verse 13. I ask you throughout, uh, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Or up in verse 1 of chapter 3. This reason I, Paul, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you. Paul has, Paul has no problem being in prison. His only, his only annoyance is that he can't preach more, which would get him sent back to prison. Paul was perfectly willing to be locked up, limited, have his rights stripped from him, and feed on measly meals each day if only the church is strengthened. And thirdly, we see in verse 11 and 12 the fullness of God's eternal purposes. Look at, look at verse 11. All of this. All of what we've said, the ministry of Paul, the Great Commission, the building of the church, the union between Jew and Gentile, the reconciliation of mankind to God, all of this, all of this, verse 11, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
All of it was God's eternal purpose. I, I, uh, uh, Keith's not the only one. I too played rugby back in, back in the day. I was not a coach or a, uh, a team builder or whatever, but I was a player. And there was this one point where uh, we, were, we were in, a, uh, I think it was semifinals, and we were versing this team, and it was, it was nearing the end of the match, and we were on draw. And so we needed to, to either score a field goal or, or get somebody across the line in order to win the match. And it was, uh, it was a Ford scrum, and, and we, I was in the scrum. I was a Ford pack. And, and we packed it, and then a couple of phases later, the ball went up, uh, got, got tackled, and it went over this side of the field. The ball went over this side of the field. And one of our props, now if you don't know what to think of or picture when you see a prop, way too heavy, and six necks underneath their chin. Just huge guys, and they, they get from about zero to 20 kilometers an hour in about 30, 30 minutes. Uh, so, so this slow, heavy dudes, he's just stopped chasing the ball, he's stopped doing his bit, he's just standing as far away from the play as he can, which puts him out on the wing, right, where Eric Liddell played, where the actual athletes are meant to be who can run fast and catch a ball, not his skill set. So here we go, where we're trying to get towards their, their try line, and, and what ends up happening is that the, we call a backs ball. So this ball starts going through the hands, the guys who can actually sprint start running, and they're getting some pace, and the ball is scooting out towards the winger, who is not on the wing, our prop is on the wing. And so he, he can't keep up. So as the ball comes out, he, he's reaching and leaping forwards in order to catch it. And over about 10 meters, while, while poor defenders just bounce off of this dude, he's, he's reaching out and juggling the ball in his fingertips while mid-fall. He's getting lower and lower to the ground as he runs. It wasn't running. It was falling with style. And, and in the last moment, as defenders just bounce off of him, I think he had about three on one leg, he, he gripped the ball just enough to be able to face plant and it counters a try. Now that was awesome to watch and it was, it was drinks on him after the game and everybody was pretty happy. We were yelling and screaming and very proud of it. But I can tell you two things. No one would believe you if you tried to say it was planned and no one would try that again ever. <laughs> that was not going to go into our playbook to try and put old, uh, the, the hooker or the prop out on the, out on the wing again. But, but this is the reality. That was not a thought-out plan. That was not a long-term plan. That is not even a workable plan. It was a miracle it worked. That is not how God thinks of the gospel. He doesn't think, remember that time as, you know, they're sharing drinks in heaven. Remember that time that death got you, but, but we sort of snuck out on the Sunday because death wasn't watching and, and then we got this thing called the resurrection. And, oh, that's right. And then the spirit, we, we dropped the spirit, but we just called that Pentecost and wow, what a great, you know, they, we were, that, that is not how God thinks of the gospel. God doesn't think of his inclusion of the Gentiles as some majestically beautiful accident. God thinks of all of these as his eternal purpose now realized in Christ. If he had a hundred universes to, to play out this history over again, he wouldn't do a single thing differently. It was all a part of his eternal purpose, planned, and a goal, all ultimately to be culminated through the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not plan B after Adam fell. 
It was plan A all the time. It was not plan B after the Jews crucified the Messiah. It was always plan A to have the Messiah killed by the sins of men, but under the wrath of God, then to have him raised back up as he authoritatively took his life back, which he voluntarily laid down, and then to rise up, sit on the throne, rule the whole universe, and bring about a cosmic redemption. That is God's eternal purpose. No accident. No plan B. But look at how this lands on you and I in the most amazingly practical terms in verse 12. As we've been speaking, this cosmic, this angelic, demonic, this spiritual, this theological, this all-encompassing, historical, universal redemption, it's hard to sort of think, and, and how does this apply to me? How do, where am I in this whole plan? If I'm just, I'm just one soul living in, in 2023, my life's here and then gone tomorrow, where am I in all of this? If, if God's all about his ultimate grand purposes, does, does he forget about us individually? And the answer is absolutely not. Because everything that God has done in all of his purposes, in all of his goals, in all of his, his redemptive uh, 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 purposes, it is ultimately so that he might get glory by having access of sinners to himself. Look at what verse 12 says. Start in 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You know what all of God's eternal purposes ultimately culminate on for the individual? That now, by faith and faith alone, you can access the thrice holy God, the God who is eternal and triune and holy, holy, holy and infinite. That God can be accessed with nothing in your hands but a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he delights in it when sinners do not come to him sheepishly, unconfident and uncertain. Will God receive me? Will God forgive me? Would God adopt me? Would, would, would he do it? And, and then once we're saved, to continue on in that matter, that, that we don't know if he'll listen to my prayers or does he really want to use me by the working of his power? Does he want to show his own grace in my life? Surely not. I'm, I'm not one of the special one's friends. God, the eternal triune God, in his eternal purposes, says to you today that he delights in sinners coming to an end of yourselves, deciding you have nothing but sin in your life, deciding that only in Jesus is there the forgiveness of sins, because he died for my sins, and he lived the perfect life, and he rose up again, so if I trust him, there is forgiveness. God wants you to bank on those promises with confidence and boldness. My goodness, the, the audacity that it takes a sinner to walk up to the throne room of God and expect grace. But Paul said, that that is exactly what the gospel allows. In fact, it's what the gospel requires. It's what the gospel commands. He said that God saved him as the chief of sinners so that no one, none of you, none of your friends, no one here who's visiting for the first time tonight would ever, for all of church history, be able to say, I'm too sinful. Jesus came for sinners, but not my kind of sinner. Not, not R-rated sinners, not horrible sinners like me. No, Paul was saved so that he could look you in the eye, so that Jesus can look you in the eye, so that I can look you in the eye as a preacher of the gospel and say, you are not too lost. Nobody is. Have access. Walk to him by faith in Jesus with confidence 
and boldness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this revelation that Paul gave to the church as as the apostle to the Gentiles and as the revealer of your truth through the New Testament. We thank you for this marvelous, majestic, unfolding, manifold wisdom of your glory in the church. We thank you for for the ways that it expands our minds and challenges us and humbles us and leaves us just wanting more of an understanding of what the gospel is. And we pray that, Lord God. We pray that you you would expand our minds so that we can understand more and more by your spirit what is the ins and outs of the gospel in the pages of scripture. We pray that you would give to us uh, your power so that we can can last through persecution and we we can empower on through mortifying the flesh and we can persevere even though the the flesh holds us back. Father God, I pray that you would give to us a, a motivation that we might not let grace simply, simply pardon us, but also empower us, that we would be those who seek to live a life that gives glory to you for all of the work that you did through us. Please make us productive, Lord God. Make us not idle, but active for Jesus Christ. And Father God, above all else, would you glorify Jesus in our midst as we think of him as the only Savior, as we think of him as the, 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 the culmination of all of your purposes in the Bible, as all of your, your intent and goals throughout history, as the, the one thing that which you have eternally planned to point everything in heaven and earth and everything in creation and everything in the Bible towards is the Lord Jesus Christ. Please make much of him in our midst and make us to love him and adore him and pine after him all the more so that we would be holy, so that we would be, we would be zealous, so that we would be passionate servants of him. And Father God, I pray for all those who do not know this marvelous Lord Jesus Christ themselves. I pray that all those who are still in their sins and not yet connected to Jesus by a vital faith, to those who have not yet trusted in Jesus for the salvation of their sins, would you tonight remove every excuse and every reason that they have brought forward in the past to try and escape salvation in Jesus? Would you give to them a spirit-born boldness, a spirit-born faith, a spirit-born audacity to come to Jesus and ask for mercy, confident that they will receive it? Father God, please add them to your church, add them to our midst and grow us by doing so. We pray all of these in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious, majestic and triumphant Savior. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.